Sometimes God is just waiting for us to show up. Unarmed, unready, ill-equipped. Not impressive, not fearless, just trying. When we do that, things change. Mountains move, seas part, tyrants topple. This is a story about a song. A song ancient troubadours would sing at wells and watering holes. Lyrics and music memorializing a moment in history that demanded remembrance. It's a song about a story about what God does when we show up, when we just say yes. I'm Justin Gerhardt. Welcome to Holy Ghost Stories. Firelight flickers orange on a harp. The strings plucked tentatively, repetitively, inquisitively. The soprano murmur of a woman's voice mingles with the lower tones of a man's. Intermittently, the harp is put down and the two begin talking. It's enthusiastic. Heads thrown back, eyebrows raised, fingers pointing at one another, laughter ringing in the night air. The moon rises while they try out phrases and stitch the phrases into lines. Disagree, agree, repeat. Stanzas come together and a story emerges, the pair of them smiling and laughing some more as they remember details, as they argue about how graphically to tell a graphic story. Then, lyrics in hand, melody, harmony, music. They're writing a song, these two. There's love in the air as they create, but it's not romantic. They're friends, partners, in fact, co-leaders. They shared an adventure a while ago, and now they're bound for life. It was a grand adventure, an exploit with Yahweh himself, a terrifying, exhilarating, surprising, hair-raising escapade, a great story, the kind you want to tell, the kind you want to write a song about. And so tonight, they sit together, reminiscing, composing, singing, so that their children and their neighbors' children and their grandchildren and who knows, maybe people in far-off lands generations from now will know what Yahweh did that day at Mount Tabor. The first day of what's been a lot of good days. But it wasn't always that way.
The line at the palm tree is long today. Lately, the people of Israel have taken to queuing up as early as sunrise, the dawn of a new day, an appropriate time to seek the counsel, the answers, the justice they so deeply desire. They wait patiently, a single mother perhaps who lost her husband in a Canaanite raid and now has a neighbor who's trying to take advantage, encroach on her farmland. A man whose ox was injured by someone else's cart, seeking recompense. A young couple, newly married, who can't stop arguing and need a wise voice to mediate reconciliation, a fresh start. An old man whose children got wind of how his meager inheritance would be split between them, some of them claiming it's not fair, demanding that they go together to see her. If not exactly these people, then people like these, with needs like these, in search of help from one who famously offers herself so faithfully to give it. Some of them are local, hill country residents from Shiloh or Bethel or Ai, but some have traveled many days, weeks perhaps, born along dangerous roads by a thirst for wisdom heading north or south or east or west to Ephraim, their hearts rising when they saw the tree. There are many palms, of course, in these hills, but there is only one palm of Deborah, the tree whose shade scratches an irregular outline on the earth, marking the open-air office of a prophet. Deborah. Yahweh's gift to Israel when they desperately needed a gift. Watching with grief the trouble, the hardship these wayward people had inflicted upon themselves, the darkness they'd invited, Yahweh gave them a bright spot, a shaft of light, a woman who is wise and fair and kind and blunt, someone to settle arguments and offer correction or encouragement, whichever is needed someone to make sure these people of his have what they need most. Perspective, guidance, love. In Deborah, Yahweh, the father of the Israelites, has given his people a mother. They've embraced her, thankfully, sought her counsel again and again, brought all kinds of questions before her, but lately, their questions have grown more focused. A Canaanite king named Jabin, an interloper, has taken up residence in the tribal lands of Naphtali. He has a general, Sisera, who runs patrols from a fortress in Harasheth Hagayim. At will, Sisera raids Israelite villages burning homes, or exacting arbitrary taxes, or requisitioning crops, or women. No one travels the highways anymore for fear of their lives. A spiderweb of back roads, alternate routes, and secret passages created by desperate Hebrews bears witness to the ever-present danger posed by Sisera's wandering army. It's not really the army, though. 
It's the chariots, the latest military technology. Any force of chariots is a force of terrifying killing machines in the eyes of simple villagers, but Sisera's chariots are fitted with iron, a newly discovered material pulled from the depths of the earth that can be formed into incredibly strong metal plating, which makes for fearsome vehicles, armored, impervious to fire, and able to gain startling momentum because of their mind-bending weight. Sisera now has 900 of these ironclad chariots. 3,000 years later, a global superpower called the United States of America will amass a terrifying force of killing vehicles called F-16s. Never ones for moderation, this future military will be satisfied only when they have built a statement-making number of these machines. Around 900, to be exact. Armed with this battalion and fueled by his lust for control, Sisera has subjugated and oppressed the people of Israel for a long time. The first decade was difficult for the Hebrews, of course, but with every passing year, things seemed to get harder. 18, 19, now 20 years in, hope of change, of rescue, fades. People stop fighting back. Warriors get fat. These days, though, things seem to have reached ahead. Israel is sick of being bullied. They're crying out, finally, to Yahweh. And they're lining up at the palm tree. Everyone overlooking their usual list of petty grievances and instead asking one question. When? Today, Deborah hears an answer. With hope in her eyes, the prophet sends messengers to Kadesh, a town within the territory of Naphtali, one of the regions that's suffered most deeply under Jabin's and Sisera's oppression. Find Barak, son of Abinoam, she tells them and tell him I want a word. When he arrives at Deborah's palm, Barak is curious, no doubt. Why would the famed judge of Israel send for him? Yahweh, of course, has his reasons, but he does not always make them known. Deborah's men usher Barak to the front of the line, and her face lights up when she sees him. Barak, Yahweh, the God of Israel, has a command for you. Go, take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I, Yahweh, will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and troops to the Kaishan River and give him into your hands. Barak stands there, dumbstruck, trying to process what he's just heard. Why? How? Why not someone? What a crazy. In the silence, Deborah looks deep into Barak's eyes, watches him struggling in this moment with Yahweh's unapologetic ambition for his life, a vision he obviously feels ill-equipped to live out. She knows the fear. 
She remembers the day Yahweh called her to be a prophet. Surely he had the wrong person. Surely he was looking for someone wiser or older or better connected or more eloquent or more male. But he wasn't. Yahweh spoke to her, wanted her to speak to his people, wanted her to lead, to volunteer. And what could she say? Well, no, perhaps. But with her yes, she'd experienced 10,000 of Yahweh's yeses. Who would have thought that a palm tree could become a courthouse and a therapist's office and a helm? Yahweh had not pushed her out into the fray alone. He'd gone ahead of her. His footsteps were somehow both the safest and most exciting place to be. She sees the thoughts racing through Barak's head. He's doing math. That's never good. Math doesn't work in this space. A thousand might as well be one, and one might as well be a thousand. She knows what's possible when people just show up, when the leaders lead in Israel, when the people volunteer. Like everyone who draws near to Yahweh, Deborah wants others to experience the thrill of yes. Will Barak? Barak's mind churns as he considers this commission. An end to Sisera's reign of terror is thrilling, to be sure, but Deborah makes it sound so easy as if this is simply a matter of walking up to Mount Tabor with 10,000 untrained, mostly unarmed men and routing the unstoppable force that's bested them for two decades. Of course, if Barak had the kind of connection to Yahweh that Deborah does, then perhaps he'd be as courageous as she is. But he doesn't. Nobody seems to. Deborah is wise and confident like no one else. It's as if Yahweh goes ahead of her. Were someone to face Sisera, they would need to somehow borrow what Deborah's got. Or borrow Deborah. If you go with me, Barak counters, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I'm not going. Hmm, that works, Deborah thinks. It's not perfect, certainly not an impressive, fearless response. This country needs leaders beyond her. People who believe that there is enough of Yahweh's presence to go around. Men and women who understand that the mighty power of the divine need not be bottlenecked with one individual. But Barak said yes, and that's a start. A good start. Certainly, I will go with you, she says to him. There is, however, a caveat. Because you insist on me coming, the honor will not be yours, for Yahweh will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. Fine, Barak thinks to himself. He doesn't mind Deborah getting the glory. That's certainly what they've all come to expect. But Deborah isn't the woman Deborah is talking about.
Around the campfires in Reuben, discussions drone on into the night as the pros and cons of engagement are weighed. In Gilead, they decide to play it safe. After all, they're way out east of the Jordan. In Dan and Asher, able-bodied men tend to the ships at rest in the coves along the Mediterranean, ignoring the appeal. But when the people of Zebulun and Naphtali receive word from Deborah and Barak that Yahweh is on the move, that Sisera's days are numbered, and that volunteers are to gather at Kadesh, they rise to the call. Issachar too. Men even come from Judah, deep in the south, ready to fight alongside their countrymen and their God. 10,000 men in all assemble in Kadesh under Barak's command, precisely the number given by Yahweh. Oh, and one woman, the only one of the lot that Barak refuses to go into battle without. Meanwhile, outside of Kadesh, there is a tree, almost as famous as Deborah's palm, but known for very different reasons. It's a massive oak. It's a center of pagan worship, and it's where Heber the Kenite has pitched his family's tents. Descendants of Moses' brother-in-law, the Kenites live down south. They're nomadic metal workers, nails, tent stakes, that sort of thing, staying in tents along the Dead Sea. But some time ago, Heber took his wife Jael and moved north, away from his people, to more hospitable terrain. And now, with Jabin controlling so much of the Northlands, Heber has struck a deal with the Canaanite king, an alliance, an I'll-scratch-your-back-if-you-scratch-mine kind of arrangement. It's required, of course, a betrayal of his people's long-standing goodwill toward the Israelites, but it's ensured his safety, a good trade, even if his wife refuses to see it that way. And today, she tries, perhaps, to talk him out of passing along the information he has. But he must tell King Jabin what he's seen. An enormous band of Israelites, led by Barak, son of Abinoam, and headed, almost with military intent, toward Mount Tabor, less than 40 miles from Sisera's fortress. As soon as he hears the news, Sisera deploys his forces, all of them, in the direction of these pathetic Hebrews, where it is that most of them aren't even armed. They will regret this defiance. Sisera orders his chariots to join his troops as well, all 900 of them. They follow the Kaishan River toward Mount Tabor, Sisera's battle-hardened, well-armored men with death in their eyes, three and a half thousand horses pounding the soil as they pull 75 dozen iron-clad war machines. From their elevated position, Barak and his troops can see the dust cloud from miles away. In time, they catch glimpses of sunlight glinting off metal. The infantry is one thing, but why did Yahweh have to have Sisera bring the chariots? Finally, as Sisera's forces turn east from the river toward Tabor 
and 10,000 Israelite volunteers do their best to steel themselves for the fight, a voice cuts through the mountain air. It's Deborah's. Go, she's shouting to Barak. This is the day Yahweh has given Sisera into your hands. Hasn't Yahweh gone ahead of you? Tabor is a Manadnok, a solitary mountain, rising abruptly from the surrounding plain in the shape of a dome, like the first bubble in a pot that's about to boil. If this battle takes place in autumn, the Terrarasa slopes of Mount Tabor are covered in yellow crocuses, big golden flowers that flourish in rocky, frost-prone places. Suddenly, Tabor's bird life takes to the skies. Jays and woodpeckers, warblers and spotted cuckoos, and snake eagles flushed from the branches of the oak trees by the rising cries of 10,000 amateur soldiers, here to follow Barak, who is here to follow Deborah, who is here to follow Yahweh, who goes ahead of all of them. The army of villagers races down the mountain, their hearts in their throats as Sisera's charioteers whip their horses and turn the reins in their direction. No armor to speak of, fingers clenched around more farming tools, hammers and sticks than swords or spears, tongues screaming the name of their freedom-bringing Sinai god. The Israelite warriors are a sight to see. Yahweh smiles. Just about the time Barak is beginning to wonder how exactly they are to gain victory in this mismatch, his men's battle cries are overpowered by a clap of thunder. A celestial rumble follows and rolls across the valley as one tiny drop of water falls from the heavens. Then another, and another, and another. In moments, leaden storm clouds have ripped open and a torrential downpour is flooding the terrain, streams of water gathering in the folds of Tabor's slopes and racing alongside the Israelites down towards Sisera's army. Meanwhile, the soil at the foot of the mountain, unable to drain at this rate, mixes with the rain and quickly transforms into mud, thick, soft slop. If you're a mid-sized man, you can stomp through it, but anything heavier, anything with a thinner footprint, just sinks helplessly into the mud. In moments, a flash flood swells the nearby Kaishan River, and suddenly, every one of the general's 900 beloved, massive chariots is dead in the water. It's like even the sky is fighting against Sisera. The Canaanite soldiers' heavy armor becomes a death sentence as they scramble desperately to keep their heads above the hungry waters of the rising Kaishan. Charioteers perhaps use their swords to try and pry the iron off their chariots in a futile attempt to lighten the load and wrest the wheels from the sludge. Israelite men grab abandoned Canaanite weapons and take advantage of the chaos, dispensing with one enemy after another. 
once the tide of the battle well and truly turns, Sisera sees the writing on the wall and abandons his chariot to make a getaway on foot. He will escape the men of Israel, but he will not get away. The Canaanite army retreats, headed back west to their fortress, but the Hebrew warriors track down every last man, killing each of them in a way that befits the cruelty they've demonstrated for the last 20 years. After this, the newly emboldened Israelites will push back on Jabin himself, and they will enjoy 40 years of peace. No more oppression. A new day has come. One morning, many years from now, a new king of Canaan will journey toward Mount Tabor with his men. This king will be much more powerful than Jabin and much more gentle. His men rank amateurs, more akin to the unarmed Israelite army than Sisera's fearsome troops. He will scramble up Tabor's slopes taking care to choose his steps so that his sandaled feet don't crush the yellow crocus blossoms. And there, atop the rounded peak, this king will give a tiny army of three a glimpse of his true self. His appearance will change from the inside out, sunlight pouring from his face, his clothes filled with light. The men will cry aloud in shock, sending Tabor's bird life to the skies. Jays and woodpeckers, warblers and spotted cuckoos and snake eagles flushed from the branches of the oak trees. And on their way down, as they head toward home, Jesus will smile, perhaps, as he remembers the day long before Peter or James or John were born, when their ancestors raced down this mountainside toward an army that outmatched them and won. Perhaps he'll begin humming and then break into a melody like a troubadour, singing the song their grandmothers sang to them when they were boys, a song written generations ago by a prophet named Deborah and her friend Barak, a song with lyrics like these. Not a shield or spear was seen in Israel. The clouds poured down water from the heavens, the stars fought from their courses. They fought against Sisera. The river Kaishan swept them away. So may all your enemies perish, Lord. But may all who love you be like the sun when it rises in its strength. And then perhaps Jesus will grin as he thinks again of the words Deborah wrote to begin the song and the way she looked when she sang them for the first time that night to Barak, how proud she was of the man who, even though it wasn't quite a triumph of courage, said yes. When the leaders lead in Israel, when the people volunteer, blessed be Yahweh.
Hey, Justin here. I hope you enjoyed the story of the muse, the magistrate, and the mud. Thanks so much for listening. If you are familiar with this story as it's told in the book of Judges, you may remember that there's one more scene I did not include in this episode. It's pretty epic, suspenseful, gory, ironic, and honestly, satisfying. Uh, It centers on a woman named JL. You may recall her cameo in this episode. And I tell that story in a bonus episode that releases next Monday, September 6th, for patrons only. So if you're not a patron, this is a great time to jump in. I cannot wait to share this story with you. It's very Holy Ghost Stories. You can get access to it and all the other patron goodies at patreon.com slash holyghoststories, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash holyghoststories, or you can just click the link in the show notes. Speaking of Patreon, my deepest thanks to all of you who support Holy Ghost Stories there. That's the only way this show continues to exist. And a big shout out to those of you supporting Holy Ghost Stories at the highest level, the Tours: Elizabeth, Scott and Susan, Ken and Patty, Luke and Haley, Mindy, Maddie, Eric, and Jody, Rick, John, April, Sarah, Ricky, Brandy, Steve, Kimmy, Liz, Stevens, Terry, Jack, Nelwyn, Jamie H., Bill and Trina, Stephen, Jessica, Ken, Alyssa, Sloan, and Jamie M., You guys are amazing. Thank you. Till next time.